I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, we had the opportunity to record in front of an esteemed audience attending the State International Trade Development Organization, or SIDO, their 2019 Washington Forum. We did it up on Capitol Hill in the historic Russell Senate Office Building in a gorgeous, gorgeous room. Joining me and the trade guys were two state trade directors, Gabrielle Gerbeau and Wade Merritt. Gabrielle is the executive director of the Minnesota Trade Office. Wade is the president of Maine's International Trade Center and a former SIDO president. We asked Gabrielle and Wade what they're hearing on the ground about USMCA, about the US-China deal, and about the Section 232 tariffs. You'll get all that, plus way more, right here on this episode, live on Capitol Hill of The Trade Guys. We're here at the Small Business Committee. Um, the last time Bill and Scott here, they were um, testifying, they were indicted, they were subpoenaed, but we're, <laughs> we're having them here, you know, under good terms. So we're here at the Small Business Committee speaking at the State International Development Organization, or SIDO, uh, their Washington Forum. SIDO is a nonpartisan organization that's part of the NGA and the Council of State Governments. They're an org- they, they are the organization that represents the international trade directors for the governor and state. I love this setup. I feel like we're kind of, you know, being judged on the one hand and we're being, you know, we're going to have to, uh, you know, wave to our audience out here on the other hand. Importantly, nobody has a gavel. We found that out at no the end of the break. No one has a gavel. Yes, right. So we're safe for the moment. Okay, we're safe for the moment. We're joined by a couple of really wonderful guests, a couple of state trade directors, Wade Merritt from Maine and Gabrielle Gerbeau from Minnesota. Thank you both for joining us. Wade, you're a past president of SIDO and have been with the Maine Department of Economic and Community Development for over 20 years. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about SIDO and what state trade offices do? Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so it's been a it's been kind of a long, strange trip. You know, we were back uh, back in the early '90s, found ourselves. I think uh, my my first job in doing international trade development was photocopying lists of companies that companies might be interested in doing business with, and then faxing them. Um, things have changed quite a bit to find yourself on a podcast, but uh, it's it's been a long trip. I I started in the mid '90s. I was a, a frontline staff member counseling companies. Um, have over time worked my way up, took the role as the state international trade director uh, in June of 2017. Um, really, our jobs, I think, are to do exactly, uh, to connect our business community and our um, our communities and our, our states, really, to international opportunities. That can be in the area of export development. Um, in our case, it also includes some work on the import side and also on investment attraction and also a little bit on student attraction. It's a big job with a very big mandate. It's a big world. Um, it's, it's, it's the idea for us is to try to make it small. And Gabrielle, you're the executive director of the Minnesota Trade Office, the state's official export development arm. Tell us what you do as director and what you're responsible for up there in Minnesota. And tell us how you braved the freezing cold a couple weeks ago. I, I heard the people's polar vortex. Yeah, I heard people's <laughs> retinas were freezing, and you had to go out with with goggles on if you if you were actually in public. I didn't go out. Good. Oh, I'm, I'm so good. Wise That's move. Good. One. Well, your, re- your retinas look fantastic. <laughs> that's why you have a heated garage. Yeah. Okay. I that's, bet. That's, and you layer. Right. So that's for that, for right. the trade. 
uh, matter. Uh, you know, every day we help small and medium companies to export and to find their next opportunity uh, worldwide. We do it through our, you know, not only phenomenal team of experts that we have at the office of 10 people, but also with our offices uh, internationally that help us just fund those opportunities. Also, we attract foreign investment and we try to beat the 49 exceptional competence that we have with the other states. And uh, finally, we have the protocol office where we try to create those relationships at another level that we facilitate at one point in time, you know, either trade or any memorandum or any future project. Bill so Reich. since we're here in the Russell Senate office building, do you guys work with your congressional delegations? What kind of support do you get from your congressional delegations? Or do you bypass them and work with the executive branch? Oh, no, I think they're critical partners for us. I think, um, you know, we have a very close relationship with uh, all four of our congressional. We're a fairly small state with only four members, but which makes it easy for us to be able to, to talk to with all of them. Um, they've all been very supportive of us. We actually support each other pretty well um, in making sure that our voices are heard down here, but also in supporting the congressional offices as well with some kind of on the ground uh, intelligence about what's actually going on in the state with the business community. Every year we create an amount of reports that are important to the state on the trade matters that we always share with our congressional delegation. Um, we should be more active in the future. You know, it has just changed. So we're trying to educate everybody on what is available to them through our office. But they're a key factor and they're a key uh, partner for us too. Do you come to them for help? I mean, if you've got somebody who wants to export something somewhere and there's some obstacle, do you come to your senator or congressman and say, can you help us out with this? Or can you go talk to the State Department or whoever it is in the executive branch, or do you just go straight to the executive branch? Actually, we could, but normally in Minnesota, because we have such an amount of uh, headquarters for Fortune 500, they've gone directly. They have a relationship directly with the senators, so they, they really don't need us for that. Those are the that. big guys. Those are but the big guys. But you're speaking for the small guys. For the small guys, normally we've noticed that it's much more powerful when they do it directly. At the end of the day, they are the ones that vote, and uh, we can facilitate the relationship. But at the end of the day, I think it's great that they speak up directly and they go after, and uh, and they just you know you can ask help exactly. Them do that. Yes, of course. Point them in the right direction. Mm -hmm. We're a much smaller state um, with a much smaller business community. We have zero Fortune 500 companies that are located in our in our state. Um, so great lobster rolls. Though. Great lobster rolls. <laughs> Excellent craft beer, and yeah. join us in the summertime. We'll see Bill there in a couple of months. It's Coming in great. August, yes. Yeah, but small states have their advantages. We do have our advantages, and one of those is you know easy access to our congressional delegation. In our case, however, when there's a trade, uh, when we have a trade issue, we'll kind of judge whether the legislative route, or the congressional route's the, the easier way to go, or sometimes we'll bring in the executive um, through our work with uh, our partner organization of the commercial, U.S. Commercial Service. Yes. In a former life, I used to lobby Senator Collins and Senator Snow mm -hmm. because we had a main presence. Mm -hmm. And uh, first, Senator Snow knew where every company was in mm -hmm. Maine. She knew every town and every company, an exhaustive knowledge. And then luckily, we stumbled on the fact that the plant manager of our plant was a high school classmate of Susan Collins. So Senator Collins had a particularly fondness for what we would do. But, but that's the small state edge in terms of your your particularly Senate representation, and their, de their deep knowledge of your specific situations. Well, I think that's right. And, and when Senator Snow uh, retired um, and was replaced by former Governor King, Governor uh, now Senator King was, um, was governor that actually created our organization in the first place. So really, he, he knew what you really were doing. gets us, knows what we're doing. And you're right. I mean, I think in Maine, um, we're, look, we're only a million and a half people, not even, um, the, the joke about the six degrees of separation in Maine, it's about two. And I think you experienced that um, when, you, uh, when you ran into Senator Collins' uh, cousin. 
I think that's true from I experienced it from the other perspective. I spent 20 years on the Hill, and most of them in, in this building, actually, uh, working first for the Senator from Pennsylvania and then for the Senator from West Virginia. And Senator Hines and, and Senator, Senator Rockefeller, Rockefeller, right. Pennsylvania is a big state. It's got a lot of issues, and getting the Senator's attention uh, was com more complicated than West Virginia because there were fewer people coming in, I think, and, and uh, it was a lot, in a way, easier, I think, for Rockefeller to do what Scott just said and what you just said, know the location of all these places. And things just mattered more because there were fewer of them. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, Pennsylvania had a whole panoply of trade issues because it, it, everything that was imported into this country competed with somebody in Pennsylvania. You know what their biggest trade was issue it, is right now? To, the Pittsburgh Steelers are about to lose Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell. The big trade issues. Am I right? <laughs> that is correct. Hines, uh, Hines for a while owned the Penguins. And he, he can't do any of that. No. No. Meanwhile, all, well, the, all, you, the, all you my can, relatives in the Cleveland Browns uh, fan base are... They're excited. I know. <laughs> Golf I know. club. I they got some in the back room there. But, but, we, but we digress. Wait, what, what are some of the biggest exports, though, from Maine? Well, we're still very natural resource based. I mean, this is the, the backbone of the main economy comes from our from the ocean and it comes from the forests. Um, the both of those have been well, the, the lobster industry has been seeing a pretty substantial growth. The forest products industry, um, let's just say we're in transition from a kind of more traditional pulp and paper based forest based economy to what are we going to do with all this pulp? There's a lot of really interesting and new technologies that are coming out there. But that's that tends to be what drives us. Um, we do have some smallish technology firms. We're close to Boston, so we've got a, a decent life sciences sector of people who've kind of made their way up the main turnpike. Um, and our techno but our technology-based sector also kind of flows itself back to our kind of traditional strengths. Like we've got a composites industry at advanced materials that comes directly from boat building. Um, a lot of a lot of those types of things. So still very natural resource-based and, and, and niche manufacturing as well. Well, we're not that poetic. I cannot talk about the forest and the ocean so badly. Or but, the uh, lobsters. You got the lobsters. You got We've lakes. tried. We have, yeah, try lobster from the lake. <laughs> we have walleye. But uh, it's, uh, it's, of course, you know, the medical industry, medical devices, specifically for products, advanced manufacturing, manufacturing in general, uh, vehicles, electric mm -hmm. vehicles, plastics. Uh, we're a very diverse economy. I think that that is one of our strengths and also maybe, you know, you can always have the two yeah. sides of the coin, but, uh, but a lot of agriculture. And not only that, but all agrotechnology, the machinery that goes with it, which is including manufacturing or the food uh, technology. So we are very diverse in in our in our industries. Medical technology is a fascinating one because medical devices seem to be an industry that it's small inventors who become astonishingly successful when they get to get a product approved for use and then quickly have a global mindset. So it, it doesn't look like a typical company that scales up or an industry that, that gets scale and then thinks about the global market. Mm -hmm. The medical device, it's first about invention, but a lot of little companies mm -hmm. with amazing innovation pipelines who think about patients all over the world for their product. And so it's, it's, it's a somewhat unique. And what I'm wondering is, does that have any spillovers in the rest of what goes on in, uh, in terms of the human capital of uh, Minnesota? Are there startups and, and companies mm -hmm. that come out of the medical device industry that are in allied fields or something else that, that makes that intellectual home unique? 
You know, that's an excellent question. Actually, right now we have the new commissioner of DEED, which is the Department of Employment and Economic Development, that is really focusing on startups right now because mm-hmm. there is such a huge amount of startups in Minnesota that are devoted to those between many other things, Internet of Things. Because I don't know if you noticed, but right now instead of seeing verticals in terms of industry, we're seeing almost diagonals. There are, the industries are just crossing themselves. Yes. Internet of Things in the, is in the manufacturing, the advanced manufacturing. They're not as clear as they used to be before. Before you belong to an industry and that's where you were stuck. Right now you're crossing industries one after point. the other. So going to your very good point. Mm-hmm. Com- coming back to your question, I think there is that kind of cradle mm-hmm. again. Of course, from Minnesota, always unknown to the world. But there is, you know, that kind of cradle that they're really, the startups, they're, they're becoming more and more important because then they have those huge companies like Medtronic, like Stark Hearing, you know, that they really, either they use their products, they use the technology, or they just purchase them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of a little bit of, a, of an ecosystem that is happening right now in Minnesota. Sure. Yeah. Mm. Fascinating. Mm. In both of your states, how important is NAFTA or the new USMCA to your state, and how has it affected your economy? Has it been a net positive, or has it harmed your state? And this is something we've been talking mm-hmm. on the trade guys for a long time. I know both of our trade guys want to weigh in on this, but well, and you're both you're both border states, yeah, actually. We are. So lar- largest mm-hmm. trading partner is is Canada, and then the second largest probably Mexico, at least for us. Yeah, Mexico is a top ten market, but Canada Canada definitely dominates the scene for us. It mm-hmm. is fifty um, percent of what the state exports goes to Canada. If you break the provinces out individually, New Brunswick's number one, Quebec is number two, and then I think it's China number three. Um, so that's a province of Canada, too. Right, that's a province of Canada, yeah. yeah. No, no, you come on now. You didn't need to read that story, huh? <laughs> you, you missed that part? Are you, are you implying that the Canadians want to annex Maine? Is it, is no, that, they want to annex oh, China. Please edit this part out. <laughs> <laughs> those, those border wars were contentious at one point. <laughs> no, but, that, but that's an interesting point, though, and, and, and one that I was going to make, actually, is that um, in our case, Maine, New Brunswick, Quebec, we existed before there was even a country. I mean, this was a... Right. a in a lot of ways, this was a line that was drawn through an existing economy. There are family ties, there are business connections, there are all sorts of ties that cross that border. That's a great point. You know, I, that, when I speak right. to student groups, I have a question. When, when did free trade in North America begin? And uh, the, the, the grinders will say 1995 or 1994 when NAFTA went into force. And uh, the clever ones will say, well, sometime before 1789. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, it's it's. It's kind of it kind of gets into our mindset and our psyche a little bit. I mean, yeah. I think that there's a, there's certainly a, um, a picture from our our main perspective that um, the folks in Atlanta, Canada, and, our, and Quebec are more of our cousins and our business partners. Um, the disputes that happen between those jurisdictions tend to be more familial. They tend to be kind of small. Um, access to that market whether it's you're going over there to do business or in some cases when we were talking about um, instituting passport control for the northern border, you were talking about people having to to have their passport to go to church in the neighboring community in New Brunswick. This is almost a birthright for access across that border. That's, That's how it's viewed in a lot of those border communities. And it's largely because they've existed for so long. So this is why I didn't understand why during all these negotiations, the United States seemed to be like arguing and fighting with Canada you know, Trudeau and Trump are trading fighting words. I mean, how can you fight with Canadians? They're nice people. <laughs> there are there are cousins, like you just said. So, so like, well, but Bill, like Trudeau said, you know, we're nice people, but we can't be pushed around, right? Trump and we know Christian Freeland, the minister, uh, foreign minister, absolutely can't be pushed around. Well, the, Wade makes the very important point that NAFTA was really about working together. 
We call it a trade agreement, but it was really about making things together and then selling them to each other in the rest of the world. And that making things together and doing things together is particularly prominent in the Atlantic region, where where these these ties are are deeper than deeper than the, the nationhood in some ways. Right, and I think you know we we run into issues when we were asked questions, particularly at the national level, about how do you interact with Canada because it is okay, it is very different than it is in other parts, just because of that. The fancy term for that is market integration. Yes. And the whole point of NAFTA was to create an inter- integrated North American market. Which it's uh, basically succeeded in, yes, in many ways. but the president doesn't like that. Right. And so that's why we've had gone through this whole exercise. We may probably end up still with an integrated market, despite what he's trying to do. But Do we have a better agreement now? Well, we don't have an agreement yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, once it's signed, in, in, in your view, do we have a better agreement once it's signed? Um... I think so. We will have to see what happens. I mean, uh, if it's really what we think that is going to be, because whatever is on the table right now, we don't know if it's going to be the final. So mm-hmm. for, for us, whatever is being said, until we don't see it, the final version, then we will be able to analyze it better. Uh, right now, we see it really as a modernization of the old. We need an agreement, that's for sure. And the uncertainty of not having one or working on a one that we know is going to end, that's not helping us either. We're seeing the uncertainty is really bothering the business and the business community. People are not making choices. Businesses are just stopped and they're not making the decision and their plan for the next five and ten years. Boy, that's which we used so, to see. so important. I'm glad you brought it up because we were talking earlier about how trade is now a prominent issue. We, Bill and I spent our whole careers on the back page of the business section and now we're front page above the fold and that feels pretty good. That's a lot of fun. But the lack of predictability uh, is is insidious and it's hard to measure because nobody keeps track of the decisions that weren't made. Okay. No, no, there's or the no, investment that was not made. Or the investment was not made. The, 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 those decisions don't get tracked anywhere. They just disappear. And that, uh, so, so you've been living in this sort of suspended animation for a little while here. How's that been? What, what's your, what, what has it done to your day-to-day jobs? Well, it's been interesting, I guess would probably be the best word for it. I mean, when it came to the, when it came to the USMCA, um, it kind of came over us like a tidal wave, I think, as far as um, the state media, what's going to happen next and, and what's going on here. I mean, our, our... And by the way, what was wrong with the previous agreement? Right. Uh, all of that. And we could, uh, we could go down the list of things that people had issues with, you know, things like softwood lumber and that were not addressed in the issue, not addressed in the earlier agreement, still aren't addressed in this we call agreement. This, we called them the U.S. Canada greatest hits. Yes, the greatest hits, <laughs> the ones that uh, the ones that we bypass and don't don't drop. And in a lot the of them are, are main lumber. Yes, paper, oil, paper. Trade is not only front page now, but it has greatest hits. Yes, it's amazing, isn't it? Yes. Oh, and, There's like and, a greatest hits playlist we of get trade guys on Spotify, by the way. And if we live long enough, we're going to get to golden oldies. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're getting to golden oldies pretty quick. There's at wow. least three generations of lawyers' children that have gone to college on the softwood lumber dispute. So, so <laughs> you can we'll say see how much again. longer it lasts. By the way, I'm yeah, not kidding. Trade guys is on Spotify. It's on Apple Podcasts. It's wherever you get your podcasts. And Yumi's going to you know, tell me if I don't mention to this amazing audience and this very handsome audience, by the way, uh, to, to say... Uh, Sound you know, like please, Trump. Please wow. look, yeah, well, Flatter them. It's, it's a very gorgeous audience. Um, and, you know... Luxurious. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you need to leave us a review. You need to like us, thank us, leave us a review, the whole deal. Anyway, I'm sorry. I was interested in, in what you said. It, it, it probably is better if you're a state where there's a lot of automobile production or automobile okay. parts production. Okay. Which is not Which, which is not you, I, I suspect. Uh, it's 
it raises a whole bunch of other issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, the digital economy sections might be good for the Internet of Things and the other Transparency activities. Transparency in the Transparency service. Is good. Mm-hmm. In yeah. the service area. One issue that may make a difference, I mean, despite the fact that the Canadians are inherently nice people, I could say my mother was Canadian, so... She was nice. Uh, there is, uh, of course, that establishes she did a whole great thing. job with raising Bill. Uh, yeah. But that doesn't alter the fact that we've had a lot of fairly bitter trade disputes with them, a number of which involve Maine uh, or actually uh, the Northeast. There was lumber, there was paper, there have been lobster issues. Uh, there was the Bombardier uh, Boeing case. That's Vermont. I poultry. Think, uh, poultry. Dairy. So there's a, a lot of issues Dairy. there. And one of the things this agreement does is it gets rid of the dispute settlement process with Canada so that your companies in both Minnesota and, and uh, Maine are no longer going to be able to sue the Canadian government for anything it does that's unfair. Does anybody care? Does that matter? I don't think yeah. people are getting into the nitty-gritty yet. They just want something. And then once they understand that something, once they have something, they will try to understand that something, and then they will be able to complain, or not. When do we expect we're going to get something? I just had a, that question <laughs> showed up on my phone Good. this morning from somebody else. Seems to be going all, uh, getting dragging out a little bit. The shutdown slowed things down. Um, we didn't have Q&A for Meredith, but the, the, the obvious question for Meredith was... This is Meredith Broadbent, who was just ITC here. commissioner who was just here. For those of you who can't see and can't hear Meredith. That's, well, they, that's right. Because this didn't. is a podcast. <laughs> that's right. Well, she was here immediately before us. And one of the, the timing factors here is that the International Trade Commission is charged with producing a, a report on the economic impact of the agreement. And they had 105 days to do that, which, uh, had there not been a government shutdown, would have been March 15th. And with the government shutdown, it's now been put off till April 17th. There's probably not a lot of visible things that are going to happen uh, before then because most of the members of Congress will say, how can we vote on something when we don't know if it's any good? We're going to wait for this independent body to give us an evaluation. Uh, what is going on right now, uh, and we've talked about this before, is the negotiation between the Congress, both, both sides of the Congress and both parties, uh, and the administration over what's going to be in it. Because under the law, once the president formally submits the implementing bill, it cannot be changed. So there's this elaborate pre-submission game in which Congress attempts to tell the president, here's what you should submit. Uh, and if you don't submit this, then maybe we're not going to pass it. Uh, the immediate issue, uh, I mean, several issues have come up. Drug prices is one. There's a rather odd LBGTQ issue that has come up. Uh, the big one is labor and uh, enforcement of labor uh, has, has, uh, has come up, and, but also the steel and aluminum tariffs, which I think we want to ask the two of you about. Yeah, we want to talk about We've got a number of members of Congress, sure. beginning with the chairman of the Finance Committee, who has something to say about this, say we really need to get rid of those if this bill is going to move forward. Now, to kind of put a point on this, tomorrow the public will get an idea, tomorrow, Wednesday, the public will get its first clue about how this dynamic is playing out because uh, Ambassador Lighthizer will testify before the House Ways and Means Committee uh, and about the general trade agenda. So I'm, I'm going to listen carefully for the questions and the answers about USMCA. 
No, you're not, because you're, you're going to spend all well, day I'm, with me. But I'm all spending all day with Bill, but I'll have several hours left while, while I'm awake after we, we finish our conference. <laughs> is Lighthizer <laughs> testifying the same time as Michael Cohen? Well, that would drive Actually, news coverage, wouldn't it? I think it may be. Because if he uh, is, I, I don't know if anybody's going to hear him, because this town's waiting for that. I, but, I'm a trade guy. I only care about Investor Lighthizer. I hear you. Well, these guys, yeah, by the way, tune in on Wednesday. Um, there's an amazing panel at CSIS, and it's being streamed, live-streamed all day long. Uh, Hank Paulson, Fred Smith, the CEO of uh, FedEx, the trade guys, and more. Sue Schwab, who Sue was Schwab. mentioned earlier. Yep. yep. But let's go back to you, Ties. What about the tariffs, the steel and aluminum tariffs? Section does, 232. Does this, does this matter? First of all, Bill, explain what is Section 232. It's a provision of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962 that gives the president authority to limit imports if they threaten national security. Right. And in the case of steel and aluminum, he determined... Uh, following up a, a commerce study that recommended, uh, that found uh, that there was a threat and recommended the president act, he acted. What is on the table right now is the same question, the same statute with respect to cars. Yes. And the Commerce Department has submitted its recommendation to the president, which has not been made public. To my total astonishment, there have been no leaks. I'm very disappointed. Uh, and and uh, the president has 90 days from last uh, Sunday to act, well, actually the 17th, whenever that was, a right. week ago, to act, and so we may not know anything for quite a while. Now, on steel and aluminum, uh, the 25% tariff on steel and the 10% tariff on aluminum have been in place for, roughly speaking, a year. Uh, and there was a report yesterday from the American Iron and Steel Institute that indicated that the steel industry as a whole in the United States had reached it, the capacity utilization figure that was... Uh, that was agreed to be the sustainable level, uh, and they were not at before the tariffs. They they are at after a year of tariffs. Which is what eighty percent, eighty percent utilization of existing capacity. So the so that may or may not factor into this, but certainly when it comes to uh, Congress approving or working on USMCA, it appears that steel aluminum tariffs with Canada and Mexico are a threshold issue. Uh, how how has that played out in your states? Well, I think you know the first time that. Um that all of this started to kind of wash over our state was in was in June. Actually, I, we the, the the first media hits I think that I started getting from from all of this was around uh, July sixth. I think when the third round of retaliatory tariffs came in and lobster was on the list, and so it was all about lobster, lobster, lobster because our uh, our lobster companies had spent a lot of time and, and money trying to get into the lobster market. It quickly lobster however, is a national security issue. Lobster <laughs> for the Chinese. Um, <laughs> the uh, but uh, you know, then then it quickly became. We quickly ended up pivoting into what we still feel is the larger story, which is the steel and aluminum tariffs and the effects on pretty much every small manufacturer in the state that right. needs to use it. Prices went up. Um, yeah. Prices went up. Uh, what's been interesting is that the companies um, the companies will, will have been talking a lot about it in private, but they have as yet been unwilling to kind of stand up and say this is this is a problem for us. So we kind of know that it's a problem um, from talking to them about it. They've somehow they've been able to kind of stay the course through through this. Um, but I think I, I would be surprised if you found anybody out there that was particularly happy about it. And Why, aren't they, sort of waiting Why for, aren't they standing up complaining? Uh, for us, they just don't do that. You know, small companies don't do that for a lot of different reasons. Either they don't, um, either they don't want to make themselves a target or they just frankly don't have the time. I mean, if you're the president of a, of a, of a machine shop that has 25 employees, I'm not going to worry about going after national you, trade you policy. you got too busy a day to yeah, I got too busy a PR for campaign. That. Yeah. yeah, all right. Gabrielle, how about you? How is it impacting your state? 
we're focusing on analyzing the countermeasures and how they're affecting the exports of the state. And we've seen, uh, they, they were very amazing, um, you know, figures, because if you look at, uh, if you imagine that this year it would be like 2017 exports, for example, the exports to China were affected 90%. For the, with the countermeasures. So that, that's a huge deal. But then, for example, Canada, Mexico, and the EU were like 5%, 3.5%, and 3%, which, okay, it is important because uh, from the moment it affects one business and one family, we're all worried because those are the ones we're taking care of. However, in the scheme of things, you know, versus the 90%, 89%, but 90% of the Chinese exports to the others, mm -hmm. well, there is a big, big gap between, and a big difference between one and the others. So is there state-level action to lobby the administration or Congress on these issues on, on your part? We are listening, but again, they're not talking. <laughs> <laughs> so we're there to listen and we will be able to take action if we knew what action needed to be taken. I mean, we know, unfortunately, it's not official. Right. So we cannot bring a, a list of companies saying, this is the issues we're having, let's do it. They can go directly to their uh, representatives, but at the same time, we don't have the official version of it. They don't want to talk. So trade guys, react to that. What, what does that make you think about? Well, it's putting basically salespeople in a position of, of disadvantage. I mean, basically every state development director is a salesperson. They're selling their state to foreign investors, to companies purchasing exports, those kinds of things. And, and you're trying to accomplish that mission. And now life just got more complicated and, and your competitiveness dropped maybe a skosh. And the companies you're trying to represent are a little less happy with the circumstances. So it seems like it's just a, it's a headache you really didn't need. Uh, you seem to be bearing up well, but. You know, we've always kind of taken the approach in Maine of, of um, trying to meet the companies where they're at. And uh, of course, you know, we will weigh in, the congressional delegation will call us and ask us how we're feeling about things and we'll pass along messages that we're hearing from the from the business community if they don't feel that they're in a position to, to kind of speak for themselves. But really our approach to all of this has been, our jobs are to help the companies um, navigate the global trade policy, no matter what it is, right? So a lot of these, like I took a bunch of calls of people saying, what am I going to do next? Well, okay, let's figure this out together. It's counseling. I mean, it, it's so just sitting down. At the end of the counseling. day, it doesn't matter who put the barrier there. You're trying to get rid of it or overcome it. We're trying to figure out a way to yeah. get over it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What about the U.S.-China trade tensions, and, and what, do we, uh, what do we think's happening? Trade guy Bill, what do we think is happening? Well, it's beginning to look more and more like a um, allegedly happy ending. We'll see. I mean, the president's been sending signals. He keeps saying we're very close to an agreement, and he eliminated the, the tariff bump that was scheduled for this Friday. He didn't eliminate it. He postponed it to no specific date. He's sending all these signals that he wants to sign an agreement. I think the uh, argument will be whether it's a good agreement or not, and it's hard to say. I think the current speculation, keep in mind that, that those of us that are on the outside basically know nothing, despite what people may claim from time to time. But it looks like this will be a package of four things. One, uh, they're going to buy a bunch of stuff. Market access. And it'll be a big number, uh, which, and they'll arrive at a big number by having a whole bunch of years. So I think the president has got to be over a trillion dollars. Well, if you have enough years, you know, it's easy to get to a trillion dollars. It'll probably be more than 10 years. Uh, so, and that's, the Chinese have got no shortage of dollars right now. That's not a hard commitment for them to make. The hard commitment will be, what are we going to do on the so-called structural issues? Uh, I think they'll be able to do some things on 
intellectual property protection and some things on some discrimination against American companies operating in China because they're in their interest to do it and because they've lost WTO cases or they're clearly under, under pressure from a lot of people. Uh, they're not going to do the fundamental things that the president wants them to do in terms of eliminating subsidies, dropping their support for state-owned enterprises, basically turning their economy into a real market economy. I think Xi Jinping has decided that uh, they have two goals in China, uh, maintaining the party's control over the, the society and economic growth. And I think for him, uh, the priority is control first, growth second. And he believes, in contrast to some of his predecessors, that one of the ways to ensure that control is by increasing the party's control over the economy, not decreasing it, which is what he's doing. Credit, uh, private companies, small companies are being starved of credit in China. The SOEs are getting all that they want. Uh, this is not the way to grow, and you can see it in their declining growth rate, but that's their policy. Uh, they're not going to do anything that is going to, in his judgment, reduce control. So there will be a smaller package. There will be a bunch of enforcement, uh, item three, a bunch of enforcement provisions, because Ambassador Lighthizer really believes, in his heart of hearts, that they're not going to do what they say they do, any, what they're going to do anyway. There will be compliance issues. So we need deadlines. We need, from his perspective, to be, the United States needs to be able to unilaterally determine whether China is complying. No consultation, arbitration, we get to decide. And then if we decide they're not, then we get to unilaterally do things like put the tariffs back on or raise them, depending on whether or not they go away. The Chinese aren't going to like that. That's one reason why we're not at the end yet. These are contentious issues. And then the fourth issue, bunch of cats and dogs, I think every time you have a trade agreement, people try to clean up outstanding issues. So Huawei is on the table, ZTE right. is on the table. There's an issue well, with uh, Fujian, Xinhua, and Micron is on the table. There's a bunch of little things, uh, uh, beef, right. chickens. The Chinese have some demands, too. And they'll try to wrap maybe all that stuff up. The president, I think, wants a short-term bump. Right. If he reaches an agreement, the market is going to go crazy. Everybody's going to be very happy. Business will say, ah, the trade war is over. Everybody will be reassured. The real question is what's going to happen a year from now, because for the president, the only path to real success is a good agreement and one the Chinese comply with. And if a year later it turns out that neither of those conditions was met, we're right back where we started from, uh, which is the Chinese not complying with a not so good agreement. Nothing has changed for American business, and it's a lot closer to the election uh, than it is now. People will have forgotten mm -hmm. March of 2019. They're going to be thinking about March of 2020. And if he starts putting tariffs back on then because the Chinese haven't complied, we're back, back where we are now. So, so I, th I think it's very risky for him in the long term. I, I agree. So, but for the, at the moment, with the president traveling to, to Vietnam to meet with Kim Jong-un, we have right. sort of have a brief intermission between Act Two and Act Three, uh, but it's probably going to be a year before we know whether it's a, a farce or a, a comedy or whether there's a happy ending. Has the uncertainty affected your states? I mean, you've alluded to this a little bit that the uncertainty in other areas. How, how about the uncertainty with China? That's that's the big one. First of all, you know, there are all these small companies that are asking questions, and they're asking questions that they're very difficult to answer. Right. But then they don't want to act upon it because they don't want to be visible, because they're mm -hmm. a little bit, I don't want to say scared. Scared is maybe a strong word, but, but they don't Cautious. want to be singled out. Exactly. Mm -hmm. They don't want to be singled out in the state. So uh, now they're just waiting. 
And as I said before, uncertainty, waiting, business doesn't go together. Right. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't grow. For us, the, the, the big issue for China was the lobster industry. Um, I can't you know, continue to, to beat on that. I mean, I, we, the, the impact of the retaliatory tariffs were broad in Minnesota. In Maine, they were, they were very narrow, but they were very deep. 99% of, the, 99% of the impact of the Chinese retaliatory tariffs on the Maine economy were on the lobster industry. Um, mm-hmm. It was all lobster, mostly. There was a couple of other smaller lines that were in there. Um, this is, again, a, an investment that those companies had made over probably five or 10 years to access the market. I think 18% of our lobster exports were going to China at the time. Mm-hmm. So it was a big deal um, for them. They found other ways to do it. They're looking at other Asian markets for, for places that they can put that, but that's not something that you can easily and quickly replace. Have they repealed the state regulation, which requires a maximum number of meals to inmates that, that are lobster? <laughs> I think that's still on the books. You can only feed, yeah, you can only feed the inmates lobsters so many times yeah. in the state prisons in Maine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a I, colonial I, this, area this regulation. You are absolutely I, I, true. Well, <laughs> Scott has an inexhaustible supply of facts. It's, it's unbelievable, right? And Scott's I, absolutely right, I, though. I mean, this, is, this was comparison. a colonial-era regulation. You could only feed lobsters to inmates on a certain number of days. You might be the only person who really knows that I'm, stuff. Well, here we I'm are. I'm proud of you, man. I'm proud of you. <laughs> I'm proud, too. Um, listen, thank you all so much for being here with us with the Trade Guys. Thanks to our guests, Gabrielle, Wade. It's been wonderful having you here. This Trade Guys episode will be posted within a day or so. Don't forget to listen to it. It'll be on Spotify, it'll be on Apple, it'll be on SoundCloud, anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for having us. This has been The Trade Guys. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for The Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have The Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Thanks, Andrew. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.